Hey everyone, welcome to another New Slang interview. I am your host, music journalist Thomas Mooney. We start off the week with episode 103, where I am joined by Oklahoma singer-songwriter Samantha Crane. Samantha is releasing her newest album, A Small Death, this Friday, July 17th. I always really like these albums where you're really able to get lost within them. You throw it on and there's these moments where you kind of just zone out because of a droning effect or something. During the conversation with Samantha, I ask her about this fever dream feel. I also kind of describe it as where you're like swimming in open water and you're never really able to see what's below you. I hate to say that there's an uneasiness to this record, but she does this like really incredible job of getting you to fall into a rhythm and then becoming hyper aware of that feeling. There's a strangeness to it, but she uses it with great effect to conjure this dread and anguish that she's channeling in some of these songs. Much of, if not all of this album, is really about the last few years in Samantha's life. She most definitely went through this dark period, something that she's called a full-on breakdown. She's had a handful of car wrecks that left her both physically and mentally drained and in pain. She was unable to play guitar, and you can feel that identity crisis in some of these songs, where she's left with a ton of questions and not many answers. She has learned how to play guitar since then in a in a way that where she's not feeling like her hands are just completely numb at, at an end of a of a 30 minute set. A lot of songwriters, they'll say that the songwriting process, that process of creating any kind of art really, that it's a, a cathartic process where you're able to make sense of things in your life. And that's really how A Small Death was created. It's very much informed by these last few years. But as you'll hear Samantha say in the interview, it's not all doom and gloom. You hear an optimism and an understanding in her voice. These songs are also about her rebirth and further understanding who she is and who she wants to be. The album isn't out until the end of the week, but if you want to get a sense of the album, go check out the songs Garden Dove and Pastime. Those are two of my favorites on the album. Before we get right into the interview, I wanted to talk to you a second about podcasting and Buzzsprout. It feels like everyone has a podcast these days. It's been really great to see people use podcasting as a storytelling outlet and to find like-minded people. You may have seen New Slang take a really big jump this past year, and one of the main reasons has undoubtedly been transitioning over to Buzzsprout as my podcast host. They've really made all the quote-unquote unfun things about podcasting so easy. For starters, that's why New Slang is on every major podcasting platform now and why it's been so uniform and organized online. I've always enjoyed speaking with songwriters and bands and artists. That's a given. But now Buzzsprout has made it so much easier on the publishing side. So if you've ever been interested in launching your own podcast, I'd highly recommend Buzzsprout, which if you follow the link in the show notes, you'll be able to A, sign up with Buzzsprout, B, be given a $20 Amazon gift card, and C, help support New Slang. Again, that link will be in the show notes. If this is your first time listening to New Slang, please hit that subscribe button. New Slang is on all major podcast platforms, so I highly encourage you to subscribe. And while you're at it, give the podcast a five-star rating. Leave a review telling us what you like most. Speaking of liking New Slang stuff, go hit up the New Slang store for your merch needs. I have a handful of items in the store right now. And while it may not seem much, you getting a koozie or a magnet or whatever, it does help keep the lights on. I'll throw a link into the show notes for easy access. All right, enough of the housekeeping notes. Here is Samantha Crane. Yeah, okay. I guess like let's just go ahead and start off with, um, obviously you have this record you've been working on. And I guess initially you were going to release it a few months back. And with this quarantine, with all of the uh, social distancing, the, the pandemic in general, you pushed the release date back. Um, I guess like what went all into a pushing the date back and then also, you know, like you've been working on this record and then all of a sudden like you're ready to release it and then you have to hit, like, as you said earlier, a great pause. Yeah, it's, um, well, yeah. So originally this, this record was, meant to come out May 1st. Um, whenever I was overseas doing some tour dates in March, whenever the borders started shutting down and, 
and travel became impossible. And so I, I kind of rushed home, not really knowing what was going on and kind of just talked to like my labels, um, my booking agents. Cause I mean, there's no like precedent for what you do, like with something like this. Um, in the world of like independent musicians who rely pretty heavily on touring in order to like promote a record. Um, if you're putting a record out without touring, it feels like everyone just took all of their time and money and energy and like decided to burn it in a chimney or something like it was just like, so I think that was like our, um, our idea in trying to move the release back was okay. Hopefully things reopen and we can reschedule tours and, um, you know, kind of give the album a fighting chance at, at actually getting out there. Um, that, really didn't end up happening. Like we've had to cancel the tour again and um, things still are pretty shut down. So, but I think at this point I was just like, I just need to get it out because I I have, um, I, I, I did this record. Like I recorded this record almost a year ago now. So, um, and I'm already like moved on in my in my head. So I use like writing as a cathartic thing. When, once I've already like processed something, I I use the writing and recording of of music to move on from it in my life. So I I just felt like this record, although it is like my favorite record I've made and the most important to me record that I've made, I'm also just like ready to move on from from that point. So I, we kind of just decided like, we're going to, we're just going to put it out and it, whatever happens will, will happen. But um, it is kind of a bummer not to be able to like tour and try to, I guess, get the word out about it in that way. Um, so, but you know, it is what it is, you know, we're all just kind of like making it up as we go, I think. Yeah. It, it's so interesting on, um, Obviously, we have this great technology, the internet, and being able to order any kind of merch online is is such a a luxury that you can have. But still, it seems like at the end of the day, people buy records at shows still, and that's like the thing that's been going on since the you know the beginning of 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 making records. You know, and, and I don't know, it, it's it's. Um, you know, I don't know, like it, it must feel like you're just kind of like in, in limbo in a, in an ass, in a, in a way of, of just where you don't know if it's too early, too soon, too late to, to release something. And so you just, you know, it's, it's, it's just better to just get it out now and, um, just see where it goes, I guess, you know? Yeah. I mean, well, what you were saying about like, people just buy records at shows. It's because, I mean, and it's part of the reason why I haven't really been super active in the online concert thing, like streaming concert. Um, there's just something about like a live show that was like why I got into music. You know, it's, it's about like sharing space with people. And that's why people buy records at shows because they're like high off of that, feeling of like sharing a common space and time um, and energy in place with the other people there. And they want to like, they're like, what else can I do to like prolong this and, and buying records, you know, from the band while they're there is one of those things. And so um, there's just, I mean, we do have the internet as a tool for, um, for artists, like in this time, whenever like our income is just like completely, you know, snatched up from, from this pandemic, but, um, it's just not like the same. And I think it has a lot of people like me sort of trying to find other avenues 
because the internet just like is not a connector in the way that actually sharing space with people is. Yeah. It's, you know, like obviously you've seen a whole lot of people do the, the um, streaming shows and adapt and find other ways to, to play. But um, it's, it's one of those things where I kind of connect it still to whenever you put a record on versus when you're streaming something on Spotify, there is a little bit of like a, a, a slight disconnect. There's, there's something as you, as you said, like there's something in the air whenever you see somebody play live and you just feel the, that you feel necessary, like it's necessary to buy something or if you, if you're connected to it or, you know what I'm saying? Like there is I I don't know what it is, like why there's um, cause even for me, I, I've not really watched a whole lot of these streaming shows because I, I don't know. I don't, it doesn't feel the same. Yeah. I think it's just, it goes down to like attention. Like it's really um, easy to split your attention up between different things whenever you're just like at home trying to like, well, I've, I've watched a couple of streaming shows like for artists that I really like and I've enjoyed them, but I've also like, put it on my calendar and like went home and like popped it up on my screen and like got a beer and treated it kind of like a show. And that's why I enjoyed it. Um, but I think the attention thing is, is where it's at. Like if you're just watching it on your phone while you're also, you know, just like stopped at a stoplight or waiting in the waiting room to at a doctor's office or something, you know, your, your whole attention isn't, isn't into that. So it just becomes like part of the, the world of like content that you're, you know, constantly taking in. So I think that's what a show has, you know, it's, it's the giving your whole attention over to it. Yeah. Uh, I've talked with a few artists about how, I guess they've had to adapt and um, how, how initially when they first started doing these, how strange it was to finish a song and there like not be any kind of, <laughs> you know, anything, any kind of clapping, any kind of uh, commentary. Um, and then like, it's kind of funny, like how all you're seeing is just like these comments scroll through the screen and like they yeah. lean in and they're trying to read and trying to figure out what's going on. And it's like <laughs> such a, uh, a just a, something totally different than, than the usual. Um, I want to go back to something you said a minute ago about how, you know, you, 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 writing is a cathartic process for you. Obviously it feels like when, to me, I guess it feels like a lot of times an artist, a record will be, will have like a time limit, um, where, yeah, you do move on. And especially since you've been with these songs a whole lot longer than the general public, uh, has that always been the case for you with, with your music going back as far as you can remember? I don't know. I've never really, um, been self-aware enough to think about that. I think, I think I only thought about it this time around because, um, because of sort of the process of releasing it and, and feeling that, tension of I just need to get this record out um and having all this time to sit and think um I think this was the first time that I was really self-aware enough of that process within myself at least with this record of of how um how these songs came about. Um, it wasn't, and I also noticed it a, a bit like at the beginning of, of the sort of pandemic when people started quarantining and, and things and people were stuck at home. Um, I noticed a lot of artists immediately like getting online and being like, Look, I, we just like made this record this week and we just wrote this song today and we just made this painting. And we just, and I was just like, how are people like creating right now? Like I'm still trying to figure out what's going on. And then it was like really apparent to me that artists use creating for different reasons. Like different artists have different purposes for it. Some artists use 
that that creative time to process things while they're going through it. Um, while they're going through it, um, some artists use the creative process as a cathartic thing, which is they've already spent the time sitting and thinking about things, tossing things over in their head, figuring out what it is that they're thinking about and how they feel about it, and then using the creative process to move on from it. And I, I never really thought about it from that standpoint, I guess, from that uh, kind of dissecting it like that until this this particular record and the release. So it's really hard for me to go back and put myself in in the position of, or like the mindset of writing my past records and knowing like why I was doing it or how I felt. I feel like I've always kind of been like a heavy processor, like somebody who gets really quiet whenever they're thinking about things and removes myself from a group whenever I'm like really mulling over things in my head. So I think it's really possible that that's, I've always used music more as a cathartic thing than as a processing tool. Um, but I can't say for sure. Yeah. That's a really interesting observation about how artists have been, uh, using this quarantine because I, I guess like that's something that I've, I've always kind of picked up on, but like I, you put it in probably better words. Um, it, it's almost like, not to like just split it up into two categories, but it's almost like where some songwriters or artists, the, the, the art is like the beginning stages of processing. And then sometimes for others, it's like kind of like that final stamp of putting it all together. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know, that's, that's really interesting. I have seen how a lot of artists have, uh, I guess like in this past few months talking with people I've I've seen some people talk about how they've started writing um, a book or they've started painting or they've started drawing or working on other creative outlets has that happened with you have you had any kind of 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 that artistic space for other channels other avenues um yes but I'm always kind of doing that I music is definitely like the biggest part of my I won't say biggest but like the most noticeable part of like my creative life it's how I mainly like make a living um but I'm always like part of my writing process is like all of the life that I live in between writing and recording and that has a large amount of other creative stuff going on just because to me that's that like puts me in the right frame of mind to keep making music and what that includes is making other things too so I'm I'm always kind of dabbling in other stuff not necessarily that I use it monetarily it's just like letting the work be enough and enjoying that process um so like painting, I've recently gotten to basket making, um, writing, um, things other than songs. I've done like a book of sonnets. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm always just kind of making things. It's, it's just what, it's just what I like to do. So, um, I find it to be an adjoining practice to like whatever somebody's main creative practices. I think there's sort of this time that I think a lot of people call writer's block that I, I don't like actually think exists. I think what that is, is just like, an there's like an active and a non-active part of writing. And that writer's block part is just what I consider like, the inactive part of writing, which is you're building up a well of ideas and things that will eventually move into the active part of writing. And it doesn't always take the same shape or form in terms of like length or time or anything like that. So, um, 
Yeah, I can totally see that during this time, if if making music doesn't feel right um, or somebody hasn't entered into that active stage of writing, creating something else can be really helpful, I think, in, in kind of moving things along. Mm-hmm. I, I think like I've, it's, it's one of those things where the average person kind of, um, to, to understand, um, what an artist does as, is is it's, it's, it's easy to block, uh, to, I guess, um, categorize you guys as songwriter, poet, painter, sculptor. And, um, I guess like what I'm saying is, um, talking with some other artists, it's, they've never really even thought of it like that. They are, they're just an artist that creates and it doesn't, some things go towards whatever, you know, and, uh, some, some things become songs, some things become a painting, some things become whatever they're, whatever they're, they, they go into. And, um, it's, it's, I don't know, like, it's just, it's really interesting to me to, to see how, uh, an artist will just view themselves as an artist versus trying to like get it down into, I'm just a songwriter or I'm just mm-hmm. a, a short story writer or whatever the case is. Yeah. I, I think that 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 idea of pigeonholing yourself is is mainly like a um I mean and I'm not trying to get like political or anything here but it's it's mainly like a western capitalist idea it's like people call themselves whatever the thing is that brings in their paycheck they don't think of themselves outside of their worth as a worker so that's why I think a lot of people tend to like, it's really, it would be really easy for me just to say I'm a musician because that's what brings in my income. Um, but I don't think it would be correct because I, I spend an equal percentage of my time doing other things and being other things. So I just think that that idea is probably something to like unpack within, in, within people like, notifying or noticing their worth outside of just like what brings in their paycheck. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, um, the other day I was talking with another songwriter who she had mentioned, I guess like it goes to this whole thing about worth thing that you're talking about where you saw a lot of frustration from, you've seen frustration from people in general during all this because they feel like they need to be out and working and they need to be out in the, um, doing whatever they do. And, um, they're wanting to, you know, in the quarantine and, and just open the economy back up. This is a couple months back now, I guess, where it was really, we were really shut down. And she was talking about how the reason why she thought people were so frustrated was because so much of, their sense of worth is tied to what brings their income in or what they are able to produce. And I don't know, I felt like that was really insightful. And yeah. now you talking about, you know, uh, that being kind of a, a Western thing, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I've, I, I don't know. It, it, I really, I don't know. I, I really like that thought, I guess. <laughs> This episode is sponsored by the Blue Light Live, my all-time favorite music venue and bar. As you know, the COVID-19 pandemic has been difficult on small businesses, music venues, bars, and musicians. There are a handful of ways that you can help, though. For starters, go over to www.bluelightlubbock.com, click on the Merch tab at the top of the page, and order yourself a Blue Light hat, t-shirt, and koozie. Second, If you haven't purchased Monday Night Lights, a 50-song compilation of Lubbock songwriters organized by songwriter and photographer extraordinaire Charlie Stout and myself, head over to www.mondaynightlights.com. The proceeds of this 50-song collection go directly to the bartending staff. We launched it a few months back, and we were blown away by the response and reception. And of course, if you're just hearing about it now, go ahead and get it today. 
This collection will never be on iTunes or on Apple Music, so the only spot you'll be able to get it at is at mondaynightlights.com. I'll throw both links into the show notes for easy access. All right, back to the show. Now, obviously, like this record, um, you know, it, it, so much of this is about, I guess, like has been about these, you know, these car accidents and not being able to play and having to um, kind of like, you know, set down your instrument and having like the... I guess like the toll physically and, and mentally. Um, now, obviously I want to like tie this back to this, this question about, um, identity. Um, you have seen yourself as an artist and I guess like with whenever you're, when you take something away as a tool of a processing tool, as a part of your income, uh, what you enjoy I guess, like, what kind of toll uh, has had has that had on on you? Yeah, I mean, that was that what you are describing is is pretty much the um, the birth of this record. Like, whenever I did get to a point where my hands stopped working because of these different health issues and the car wrecks and um, a bunch of sort of psychosomatic uh, mental breakdown sort of things. Um, yeah, basically, you event well, eventually, if you're lucky, if you can get out of that very very dark period, um, you start to kind of search for and learn about who you are as a person outside of sort of my, like my self appointment and identification as the musician, Samantha Crane, which is just kind of like, um, we all do that. We, we all have to form a sense of self in order just to move through the world in a, um, survivable state, I think. And so, um, when that starts to break down, when that gets taken away, that identity, it, it becomes like a really hard thing. And you're, you're faced with that really uncomfortable position of getting to know yourself sort of from scratch. And so it's kind of like peeling off a costume that you're like put in as a child and then like allowing yourself for the first time to kind of like dress yourself and like fully lean into like all of your curiosities and sensitive sensitivities, things like that. So, um, that can be really hard, but eventually I think the excitement of that, that you get really giddy and there's like these really sort of audacious stages of life where you just find all of these new facets of yourself, which is really exciting. Um, and that's sort of what led to this record. I mean, the, the story behind the record and the songs are quite sad and traumatic, but I don't necessarily think that the record is sad because what it's showing what the thing that it was born from is is that feeling of of finding joy again um through this process so um yeah i mean you kind of hit the nail on the head in terms of what the what the birth of this record was and and the feeling that that produces yeah it's it's weird because like yeah, you 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 say, you know, these dark moments, these these, it that has to be frustrating and uncomfortable, but at the same time, there is that, um, you're finding your your sea legs, I guess, and you're realizing like, oh, um, this is it's it's going to be okay. It's not going to be like this forever. Um, was there a a moment that you can like point to that was like where it was evident that like you, you were like, I guess, you know, finding yourself and getting back, uh, not to, not to say normal, but getting to a, a a place of, of normalcy, I guess. Hmm. Well, I, so whenever I was, at the beginning of 
this sort of period in my life, I was more or less like bedridden. Like I, I wasn't like leaving my house. I was just like shut down. Um, eventually I just was like, I don't want to live my life like this. Um, what are the steps that I need to take in order to, to get out of this? So, you know, that for me meant finding different therapies to go to, to recover and both mental and physical therapies. And, um, one of the things that one of my therapists suggested for me was walking and I was just like, I don't understand what you're asking. You just want me to like go on walks. And um, I live in Oklahoma where it's uh, not like a super walk friendly um, area, you know, like and everyone drives right. cars. Um, there's, it's not like very common to, there's not like sidewalks in most places and stuff. So um and she was like, yeah, it's, it's meditative. It it helps you figure out like what your hangups are in that sense being like, whenever you start thinking about something and it's just like nagging you and nagging you, um, then just walk until it leaves your, your head and whatever way that you, you know, work through that. And I, I started doing that mainly because I, I would go on these really long walks whenever I lived other places or whenever I would be on tour in Europe or something, I, I would walk a lot just to kind of get ready before a show, um, reset things. And so I did think that it would be helpful. And I just started doing that. I started just going on these really long walks and, um, working through a lot of my, uh, sort of like hangups about what was causing different, um, different stress points and things like that. And, um, you know, it would be sometimes it would just be like a mile. Sometimes it would end up being six or seven miles. And, um, I think that's whenever I, I started feeling like at least I had a tool to like move forward in my life. Whereas before I was using things that were like short fixes, like, you know, drinking too much or like, um, ordering some like gross pizza at three in the morning or something, or <laughs> like all of these things that were, you know, quick sort of problem solvers to get my mind off something. Um, what I found at that moment was, Oh, I might've like found like an actual tool that I can use like for the rest of my life to make sure that I don't get like in a spot this dark again. Um, and that felt really good to me. I mean, and past that, that was like pretty early in the process of all of this. But like whenever I did start getting use of my hands again and start playing guitar again, I um, I went on this short tour opening for the Mountain Goats. And then right after that, I did a house show tour. And there was this moment where I was just like on the house show tours, I would just sit in someone's living room without like a PA or anything. And um I had my guitar just like on my lap and I was playing and there was this moment during one of the sets where I just like leaned my head on the saddle of the guitar body and just like felt the vibrations of it, like kind of moving through my face. And it was so moving to me. And I just realized it was just like this really special moment of kind of getting back to that feeling of why I started like writing songs in the first place, which was, you know, to make this, to make a connection with people. And at that moment, what I, what I felt was like this instrument, you know, causing these vibrations through my arms and my head and everything. And, um, knowing like how special that moment was that I was getting to do that again, whenever I thought that I wasn't ever going to be able to play guitar again. Um, so, yeah, I mean, those are like two moments in my head that sort of stand out as real sort of bright lights of moving forward, I think. Yeah. 
we, we just have like, I guess it's human nature and then also just like the society we live in, you're always kind of taught to just find the quick fix. You know, it's the, it's the reason why people smoke cigarettes, you know, um, just that little bit of to take whatever tension away. And um, that I guess the, um, you know, like it, we never really look for what um, are the long-term fixes. So yeah, it's, it's walking. Um, did you, was it, was it a lot of like just silent walking or did you, you know, did, were you playing music or podcasts or, or anything like that? What was your kind of your, your go-to when it came to that? Um, I think at the beginning, yeah, it was just silent. I mean, I, this is still like a thing I do every day. Like I walk about six miles a day still. And I'm at the point now where sometimes I listen to podcasts and music and stuff. But I think when I first started doing it, it was just like no headphones. It, it was mainly because I, I didn't know where to walk yet. And I was afraid I was going to get ran over. I think I was just kind of like, (laughs) um, I, I think I was, freaked out that if I had headphones on that like a, you know, a giant Ford Ford F-350 truck would like run me over because they aren't used to seeing people walking. Um, So I didn't, I didn't have headphones, but it also helped, I think, with the meditative um, process of it, Um, just not having music and stuff. But now that I know where to walk and not get ran over, plus the town that I live in now is, uh, has built a lot of sidewalks recently. So it's been really helpful for me, but um, yeah, I think at the time I was just kind of walking in silence, but now I, I kind of switch it up depending on my mood. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, I, I don't, I live in a, I live in Lubbock, so it's not very Walker friendly either. Yeah. And it's um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's uh, I don't know. Um, but one of the things I was going to ask about was the, the, the physical aspects, like, you know, you were not, you had to, you couldn't really play guitar. Did you have to like re, um, I guess like, how did that change the way you played guitar or, or did it? Oh yeah, it completely did. Like, cause even though I can, even though I have like feeling in my hands again and I still have pretty um, pretty bad tendonitis and carpal tunnel that I still deal with. But, and basically what, um, what I've started doing just to kind of hopefully not get into a spot where my hands get that bad again is I I've started like writing and open tunings a lot more. So my, my hands aren't like holding down, you know, uh, barred cords all the time and things that would, you know, cause like, uh, tension to like nerves and muscles around my hands. So a lot of, a lot more open tuning stuff. Um, so that way my hands just get like a break, um, during songs. Um, right. That's the main thing, which I just like never did open tunings before that really. But whenever I started having these issues, that was something that I noticed helped, helped me a lot more. So that's something that I've been working in a lot more, which has changed the way that I write songs too. It's kind of hilarious, really. It's, um, it's, I, I, it's hard to call like really awful things that happen to you, um, like blessing in disguises. Cause it feels like so cliche and stuff, but there are like really interesting things that have happened due to this, you know, like I, I've written a lot. I've, I've, I think grown as a writer in a lot of ways because of this, um, because I've kind of been forced to, to learn how to play the guitar in a different way. Um, which is interesting. Yeah. Well, I, I was going to say like, th- has it affected like the, the writing process and has it, what has it done to older songs? Has it, wh- how do you, what do you do then with, with older songs? Um, I mean, so it's really interesting because this this year was supposed to be the year that I was going to get back into really like full on touring um, and like doing headlining shows, like full hour and a half sets 
Um, but really I haven't tested out like what, what that's like doing like a, a full set over and over and over for like a, an extended amount of time. Because since 2017, um, when, when I had to start canceling tours because of my, my hand issues, um, I've really only done sort of short tours opening for other artists. So those are like 30, 45 minute sets. Um, it's really not enough time at, for my hands to really start like getting affected. So um, <laughs> it's kind of interesting. Like I, and, and in those sets I would play older songs, but I would, kind of make my set list to where if I had a, a song that was going to be, you know, a lot of barred chords or something, then I would do like a, an easier open tuning type song next. So just to give my hands like a break for a song, that sort of thing. Um, and that's an easy set to make if you're just trying to figure out 30 or 45 minutes. Plus I talk a lot during my sets too. Like I tell stories and, and things. So that's a break as well. But yeah, I haven't actually got to try out um, how it's going to start affecting me in the long run as like a headlining artist um, who has to do like hour and a half long sets for, you know, every night for two months or something. Um, that was kind of what <laughs> this record and the tours surrounding this record were supposed to be the first sort of glimpses into that. So I'll let you know whenever we get back around to touring, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I kind of figured it would be one of those things where like you weren't changing songs necessarily, but you were just like spacing them out differently. And... Yeah, exactly. This episode is sponsored by Wicker's Mesquite Smoked Jalapeno Jelly. It's owned and operated by my buddy Wes Wicker, who makes the jelly in small batches for the best quality and freshness. He smokes the peppers with mesquite, and uses pure cane sugar to make the jelly. What you get is this great blend of smoky, sweet, and spicy. It's addictively savory. For those uninitiated, Wicker's is a great addition to any chef's kitchen. Part of what makes Wicker's so great is just how versatile it really is. For starters, it makes a great meat glaze. Throw it on a batch of hot wings, use it on some pork ribs, some pork chops, really whatever you can think of. Eat it on biscuits, cornbread, bagels, or toast. Throw it on a ham or turkey sandwich. Another super simple but effective way is to get some cream cheese, throw some Wickers on top, and then grab your favorite cracker. Wickers is currently stocked at a handful of places in Lubbock and on the South Plains, as well as some Fort Worth and DFW locations. But the easiest way to get your hands on a jar is to head over to WickersTX.com. That's W-I-C-K-E-R-S-T-X dot com. I'll throw a link into the show notes for good measure. They currently come in two varieties, original and now hot, if you need just a little bit more kick in your bite. You can order anything from one jar to a case of 12, whatever fits your needs. Again, that's wickerstx.com. Okay, back to the show. So, um... Yeah, I don't know. It's 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 so strange how, like you said, you know, it's um, you try not to be cliche about something bad happening to being a blessing in disguise. But it is interesting to see how um, when your hands forced a certain way, how you can you, you adapt and change to still be able to do the same things or it opens up the, the proverbial door to other new things. So, yeah. Um, now, like you said, you know, you you recorded the record about a year ago. Um, I guess, like, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but you you self produced everything, right, on this record? Yes. Um, what what did uh, what goes into that? Like, where I guess, like, is it is it two different kind of brains where you're you're thinking as a as an artist and then as a producer, or is it not necessarily even remotely close to that? Um, I think I can, I can only speak 
for myself, um, I've worked with a lot of producers that are producers in more of an organizational um, sense where it's like, you know, they make a list of what instruments there, there's like the, I don't know if you've ever walked into like a recording studio where a band is like making an album and they have like a dry erase board and a list of every song and then all the instruments that are going to be on each song. And then they like check them off as they record them sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that is like a very common sort of method. And I've worked with a lot of producers that work more like in an organizational, an organizational fashion that basically they're there to make sure all of that stuff gets done, be an additional creative brain, of course, but then also sort of serve as a session psychologist too, because there's a, uh, there's a lot of like stuff that happens in recording sessions that people don't really understand, which is like a lot of frustrations, a lot of self denial, a lot of um, lack of self-confidence, a lot of just like all of these things that end up happening when you're like in the studio trying to make something really important. And so a producer has to be like, okay, what can I do to get the singer to sing? Even though she's like, having a breakdown in the corner um, or how do I move this session along? If like this drummer showed up and he's, you know, can't get this groove right because he's like, I don't know, hung over or something. So, I mean, those are all aspects of a producer and I did take on all of that, but at the same time, this record is so different for me than my other records because it was, it was so it came to me like so completely like normally I write the songs and I'm I'm happy to open them up to um interpretation to the other instrumentalists and musicians that I'm working with um but this record when I wrote the songs like the arrangements the sounds the feeling that it came to me so completely that in a way it was like, I was the only one that felt like I, or I was the one that I was like, I have to produce this because I can't explain all of this to someone else and, and make sure that it's done right. And so I, I think for me on this record, it was like an, it was being an artist for the, for the whole the whole process, the producer, the recording artist altogether was like one project for me. It was just like one massive persona I had to, to take on. Um, that's not how it is for all of my records. I'm very happy a lot of times in the past to be like, here are these songs that I wrote. Like, what do you think we should do? Like, that's cool. I don't like that. You know, just kind of, um, make it more of an open conversation. Um, and this was a pretty much like a manifesto for me, I think. (laughs) So, um, yeah, that's sort of where I lie on producer artist, uh, meanings, I guess, at least for this record. Yeah. I always, I guess like we always think of, we romanticize the idea of the producer always being like a, a Phil Spector and like, or like a Rick Rubin or just like a massive personality. And, um, yeah, I guess it's always, it's not, (laughs) it's why they're, they're the outliers, you know, and most of the time it is, it's just the organizational skills too. Yeah. It's a big, well, I think something that I've noticed and I I could be wrong on this because I, I'm still, I'm still learning as a producer myself, but I think that larger than light persona that producers, um, have that like all the famous producers have. I think that that is a, it's a technique as much as anything else, because the one thing that, that bands and artists need while they're making a record is like a, a like shining light, something that's like inspiring to them a hundred percent of the time. Um, And weirdly enough, like a producer kind of becomes that they need 
to wake up every morning and be like, whoa, this like really cool, bizarre, genius person is like in, in charge of my project and like is making it happen for us, you know? Like, so I think that that's where that whole sort of romanticized persona of a producer comes from. And they all have their own thing, right? Like, I mean, like Rick Rubens is like Zen, Zen producer, you know? So like, (laughs) it's like, um, it's kind of a neat thing, honestly. It's, it's, it's a technique as much as all of the other learned techniques of being a producer, I think. Yeah. It's, it's, um, I always kind of envision like T-Bone Burnett, like never talking to the person. He talks to someone else and then they talk to you. Like, I could like, totally <laughs> see that. Like he only talks to the engineer and doesn't yeah. talk to anybody else. Like I could totally see that being the case. I don't yeah. know if he does that, but yeah. Yeah. And like, not even like out loud, just like whispers to them. Like <laughs> kind of thing. I don't know. Writes, um, it, writes it down on a piece of paper. <laughs> yeah. Um, so like, I'm a big sports person. So I love like reading books about like specific seasons of, of, of a team. And it feels like there's a lot of shared um, qualities between like a coach and, and a producer, because with a coach, it's almost not always about the X's and O's. It's about like, you know, the, um, handling the egos and knowing who has the, the, the fragile ego and who needs to be like tempered down and who needs to be b- built up and, all of those aspects. And that's like, what's so interesting to me about, um, I guess like the, the making the the record process. And then obviously in relation to sports, like the, it's almost never for me about like the, the, the game itself, but it's like the, the soap opera around the game. Yeah. So, I mean, not to get back into the sports thing, but I mean, I, I, being from Oklahoma, I, everyone knows the the legacy of Barry Switzer, you know, and he was definitely, I think that kind of like coach of, of hand, like knowing, you know, what egos went where, that sort of thing, not necessarily an X and O sort of coach. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's the, um, I, it, this goes, uh, <laughs> we could talk about <laughs> recruiting and all that kind of stuff. Is this a very like, yeah. podcast now? <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it's partly like the, um, where I guess like for a comparison's sake, um, here at Texas Tech, obviously Cliff Kingsbury was the coach for a while. And, um, even though like he, seemed really, really cool and like, you know, wore Ray-Bans and like was just really cool on the sidelines and connected to the players in a lot of ways. More so he was an X's and O's coach. And what that means is in, in, in a way was like he was, one of the things that people were critical of was that he wasn't a great recruiter. And, you know, if you look at like him versus, now of course Barry Switzer, has won championships and stuff like that, right? In Cliffs Kingsbury, didn't. But part of the big uh, part of, of with with Barry or like any of these coaches like that is them walking into your living room and being a larger than life superhero in a, in a sense, right? And yeah. that's why they'd get. Now, there's probably some other reasons too, um, money and and drop bags and stuff like that. But uh, (laughs) why they get like the the big players and sometimes other teams don't. So um, (laughs) yeah, let's go back to the, the record here. Um, (laughs) One of the things that I really liked about this record was there's, I guess like you really create a, a, a almost like a dreamy kind of soundscape with a lot of these songs. They, they, there's sometimes a sense of like a, a fever dream sense. And I guess like, was that, what were, what was your intentions of trying to make these, some of these songs, um, a, a layered kind of dreamy sense that had a lot of like dark tones and, and whatnot. Um, yeah. I mean, like once again, I think you really picked up on, something um I, I think that that's like a hundred percent what I was trying to capture mainly because I, I don't know if you're 
I'm sure that anybody that has lived any amount of time is familiar with that feeling of, of trying to think back on a part of their life and being like, I know that I lived that. I know that I lived through that, but I, I just don't remember it in the way um, it's like, it's like stuff that you, you watch on home videos, like when you're a kid and that's like why you remember things, not necessarily because you innately remember them, but just because you remember the videotaped memory. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I, I, I that, think a lot of people talk about how with memory, it's not that you remember the, the initial memory. It's like you remember the last time you remembered it. Exactly. And, and that was that feeling, which I'm sure there's some like amazing German word for it or something that I just don't know where they like, (laughs) they always have like a way of creating this like word for, for something that there's not a word for, but that feeling of, of remembering the last time you remembered a memory, um, was like what I was trying to capture, like with the production elements of this, because even though that, that time in my life, this like really dark sort of mental and physical breakdown state wasn't that long ago, you know, it was 2017. Um, I still don't remember it in the way that um, I, I remember it innately. I remember it as like I was looking at a photograph or something. Um, it's hard to, to, remember myself being the person that went through it, I guess. And so I was trying to kind of capture that feeling and think fever dream is like a pretty good way to explain it. Um, uh, To me, from the production standpoint, the thing that I thought would capture that was um, we did a lot of tape looping um, just as sort of background ambiance and, and vibe. I think that kind of helps put you in this state of fever dream, I guess. With the song Pastime, there's like this sort of um, droning, uh, chanting background vocals that I think I I wanted those there because I kind of wanted you to feel like, have I been listening to this song for like 30 seconds or 30 minutes? I don't really know. Um, So there's just like elements like that where... I wanted it to be accessible enough for people to sit down and listen to it without being um, really, you know, uncomfortable or anything. But I also wanted them to every once in a while just check back in with themselves and be like, what's going on again? Like, what, where am I? What's going on? And and that was um, very apparent and always like on in my mind when I was like thinking of of different things for the production of this and and mainly what what we used for that was like synthesizers and um tape looping yeah I also think like the the when you guys bring in some horns has like a it really sets part of the tone and mood of a rec of of the song and um I think like apparent, like the most probably apparent on that is like the song Garden Dove. Like it just feels like that is such a huge part of that song. Yeah, I think like putting a saxophone in a song, it like immediately kind of puts you in like movie soundtrack territory, you know, it, which is always good if you're trying to like um, create that sense of uh, make, make believe or like larger than life sort of thing, you know, just stick a saxophone on it. I think you're good. Like, (laughs) yeah, yeah. It's, um, there's, there's a, I guess I'm not like a musician at all and I was never in band or anything like that. So, um, but there's this, uh, this one saxophone player, I guess he plays like a, I think it's like the, a double baritone or, or a baritone sax. I'm not sure. But uh, Colin Sex, uh, Seston, I think, is that his name? That's what it kind of reminded me of. Um, he played on a lot of like um, stuff with like the Arcade Fire or like Bon Iver. 
And he had okay. some solo stuff as well that's just all instrumentation. And it's it's probably a little bit too out there for like most people. Um, it's not like I listen to it any, every day or something like that. But that's like a lot of the, the vibes I got was like just that kind of um, like, I don't know, like you said like you didn't want it to be uncomfortable. But like there is this like a little <laughs> sense of like whenever you're in open water. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I don't well, know. what you're talking about, like that, um, the, the guy that plays on my records, he does have these sort of like specialty saxophone uses. So they're not like the sort of super tenory saxophones that you hear like on a, like E street band record. That's like right. jazz or like, you're like, Oh, Bill Clinton on the Jay Leno show, like that sort of thing. <laughs> like it's not, yeah, it's not bringing you to that sort of mindset it's taking you to yeah i think like open water is like a little bit dangerous because it's like this weird um yeah like that super kind of creepy deep baritone sort of uh sound um that we layer with clarinets a lot of time which gives that additional uh sort of uh uneasy organic feel because of the reeds and stuff so i that's a that's a really interesting way to put it. But yeah, I think open water is probably a, a good descriptor. Yeah. Um, it, it, one of the things you said a minute ago that I find really interesting was about how it, it's the whole like the, the fading photograph thing, the memory, like you're not really remembering yourself then, but like trying to, um, not necessarily even trying to get back in that headspace, but trying to like capture whatever that is it's it's what what i thought about was and this is just one of those very very super simple um probably like way too basic of a comparison but you know like whenever you you're on facebook and you get like facebook memories and a memory will pop, pop up of something you said 6 or 7 8 years ago and you're like why would i have thought that why <laughs> and and that's what i've like it's it's sometimes it's so strange to think back on a the former version of yourself and you're like you you don't almost you almost don't recognize who that person is yeah yeah i actually there's a song on the record that i wrote that is like kind of about that feeling called high horse and it's just like about that surge of different emotions where you're like diving into that thought about seeming like a different person that like the person that experienced those past events um, feels so different from like who you currently are. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in that idea as like a human state, because I'm sure that it gets even weirder, like the older you get, like, what's it going to feel like in another 10 or 20 years when I have, like multiple lifetimes to look back on, you know, it's it's an interesting thought. And I'm like really into thinking about it and digging into it. Yeah. Cause obviously like, you know, the, the title of this, a small death, you know, is it, what what I wonder is if you're, you're going to feel like this was, um, I don't want to say a phase, but like, you know, a a phase of like a rough patch. And then like this is like just um, a different version of you. Or if this is like a a version of that, you feel like you've really, um, I I don't know, like obviously you've changed and um, evolved and gone through a lot of different things here. But like, is it, are you going to look back and think of this as just a moment in your life or as the moment in your life? Hmm. Um, I mean, okay. So I'm not like really into astrology, but a a lot of my friends are, and they mention this thing called like, I think it's called like Saturn return, which is basically like when the, when Saturn comes back to meet like, your natal Saturn. So like where, where it was when you were born, it takes about 29 and a half, 30 years, something like that. So all of this shit started happening 
<laughs> with me, like around that time in my life when I was that age. And so I, I think there is something about that process um, that I like to think about, uh, about kind of completing a rotation, I guess. And that just becomes sort of like a rebirth time. Um, so maybe in another 30 years, I, I feel uh, a similar rotation. And maybe I just have like the, hopefully by then, like the emotional intelligence to, to deal with it. Uh, a bit better at the beginning of it, I guess. So I have a feeling these things happen all the time. Like everything is always starting again. Um, and that's just like how it goes. And you just get better at, at dealing with the restarts. I yeah. Think. Yeah. The, the astrology thing, that's always like something that, you know, I don't ever, I don't really believe in it either, but every once in a while you, you come across something about your sign. It's all over the place. And then you're like, well, I don't know. Maybe there's uh, <laughs> maybe there's stuff, like, I don't know. You can pick things from it and apply it to, to, I guess that's what I'm saying is like, there's, you, you can pick, there's, there's going to be something good in everything that you can, uh, apply to your life and, and be and get better from or you know what I'm saying so yeah I, I always wish I was like more into the astrology thing I've just never really like gotten into it I because I just I think personally like I don't feel very attached to it to getting to know about it like I've never really had an interest in it but all of my friends that are really into it are all really cool people and so I'm always just like I think I'm probably missing out by not getting into this but also I just don't find the the pool to it, I guess. But, um, yeah, that's, I, I do think that the Saturn return idea though is, is pretty, pretty interesting and, and neat. And yeah. 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 The, I don't know. It's, it's, it is interesting to, to read about. It's like also kind of like the, um, there's the, like the, I guess there's two kind of popular personality tests like the, the Enneagram thing. And then there's like the, um, Myers-Briggs personality mm -hmm. test where I also go kind of, you can't just like, uh, you know, categorize people by, like into 16 different kinds of people or whatever. But, um, every time I read something about whatever I am, I'm like, well, okay, they, they've hit the, the nail <laughs> on the head on this one, but I don't know. <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, it's been uh, really great talking with you on about this record and about um, life in 2020 here, Saturn Return, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> okay, everybody, that's it for this one. Be sure to check out A Small Death by Samantha Crane out Friday, July 17th. Check out episode sponsors, The Blue Light Live and Wicker's Jalapeno Jelly. Check out the new slang merch store while you're at it. Okay, I'll see y'all Thursday for another episode.